0: All the signs, many signs, showing that there's something terribly amiss in our world. And even in spite of the carnage that we see regularly displayed on the news, both here in America and abroad, in spite of all the the signs that abound in the world, many do not realize that we are indeed at war. Of course, this passage in Peter reminds us that the worst, the fiercest enemy that we face is one who is not visible. Rather, he is one of a host of spiritual beings that exist, as much and as real as sound waves exist all around us, and we're not aware of it, we don't, we don't uh, see them, and yet they are very real. And the spiritual enemy, more dangerous, dangerous and more ruthless than any other, Has declared war on us and on the entire human race. However, for many, um, they don't either want to recognize or don't want to give thought to the fact that we are indeed at war. And so casualties are piling up even among Christians or in Christian families. And one of the reasons I believe is because we don't take this declaration of war by our enemy seriously. Now, the good news is that not only does God inform us of the nature of this war that we are very much implicated in, but God also gives us the means to withstand the attacks of the enemy. And to do that, we need to be willing to take on the armor, the spiritual armor, and and adapt the means that God gives to us in order to stand fast and to resist our enemy. In fact, the Bible reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so, friends, I just want to remind all of us. Uh, I know many of you are aware of this and think about it, but I want to, like to remind all of us how needed how needed it is that we take on the spiritual arms of God day by day in order to withstand the withering and and uh, unceasing attacks of the enemy. And so, first of all, we're going to look at just two points in this passage here. We're going to take, underline two points here. The first one is that Satan is indeed seeking to destroy us. And, again, I I hope there wouldn't be any doubt in your minds. Again, the text is very, very clear. In verse number 8, when it says, "...because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour." And so we can be sure of it. We are certainly in the crosshairs of the devil. And so the text says that he is seeking to devour us. And like I was saying in the introduction, there's no, no lack of proof for that as uh, casualties continue to mount all around us. Um, Satan is attacking at every level. Just to give you a couple of examples. Um, he's attacking to destroy any semblance of purity that there may have been in our culture. Um, for some time, there was at least a certain Christian ethic that uh, prevailed in our culture, not anymore. Uh, there was a TV show that came out a couple years ago. Um, I didn't see it, but I read the synopsis of it, and that was enough. But the, the point of the TV show was about a gay couple who wanted to have a baby, two men... And so they engaged a woman to be the surrogate mother for them to have a baby. Guess what the name of the TV show was? The New Normal. And that's exactly where Satan wants to take us. He wants wants to establish that as the new normal in our culture. And he's been very successful, hasn't he? He has been incredibly successful at completely destroying any semblance of purity in our culture and, sadly, also in many of our homes. Um, He's also seeking to destroy, we're all aware of this, seeking to destroy the most innocent of beings. It's hard to imagine he could be so successful in that area that he could persuade a whole generation to slaughter wholesale millions upon millions upon millions millions of innocent babies. It's hard to imagine he he could have succeeded so well. And yet he has. And I believe one of the reasons he's been so successful is because many have not taken... Seriously, this warning that he is uh, roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour he 's even seeking to destroy entire groups of people and uh, if you just look in the last thirty or forty years, millions i mean since World War II I, World War II was horrendous enough of example, but in the last thirty or forty years, millions have been systematically exterminated in places like Cambodia, Bosnia. Rwanda, Sudan. And Jesus himself puts a finger on it when he calls Satan what he is. He calls him a murderer. He calls him the destroyer. And so we need to be aware of the fact that Satan is indeed seeking to devour us. But that's not his only tactic. That's one of his tactics, and he's, re- and he's succeeding very, very well. Another tactic that he uses is to blind those um, who do not know God, in order to keep them from seeking to know the truth, and um, so he uses different methods. There's a passage in Second Corinthians. If you want to turn Second Corinthians chapter four, that speaks to this. Second Corinthians chapter four, and verses three to five. Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3, it says, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. And so the text says that he's seeking to blind those who don't know the Lord, So how does he do that? Well, again, he's called also the father of lies. And so if he can succeed in getting people to believe a lie, then he will succeed in blinding them to the truth. And so, again, some of the most absurd lies, even, he has masterfully introduced into our society. And so people don't believe that we were created in spite of all the evidence to that fact. They believe that we evolved from slime, for which there is no proof um they he's convinced them that we are not guilty sinners i may have mentioned this before but uh, i was able to visit the synagogue here in uh, lebanon uh, not too long ago went to one of their services actually it was the service of yom kippur about the atonement and the the rabbi informed me after the service he said you know here in the synagogue we don't talk about sin because we don't believe that we're sinners It's like, how can can you not believe that? Don't you know your own heart? You know, it's like, just look in the mirror. But Satan has has succeeded in in convincing us that we're not guilty sinners. We're basically good people who do bad things because of our environment, you know, because of others who have provoked us, uh, because we have a disease, uh, etc. We find all kinds of reasons and excuses for our sin uh, to minimize or justify it. Or again, he convinces people that there's no absolute truth, that everybody has their own truth, and so even though you might take two religions or two philosophies that teach things that are diametrically opposed—I mean, that totally contradict each other—people will still say that they're both right, and that happens all the time. You know, for example, in the Islamic faith, um, the Quran teaches that Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, for example. Um, He didn't die on the cross, and therefore he wasn't resurrected. The Bible says, of course, that he both died and rose again from the dead. And yet there are many that say that they're both right. They're both equally good ways to get to heaven. Even though they teach two completely opposed, um, impossible to reconcile uh, different truths. And so, once again, Satan has been masterful in introducing these lies into our society and blinding those who don't know the gospel. Uh, There's another text we could look at in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, where Jesus also makes a comment, this time about the religious leaders of his day. Matthew 15, verse 14. Matthew 15, 14. Jesus says, Let them alone, referring to the religious leaders, they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. So people might think, well, if we're going to look for truth, then let's go to a church. You know, let's go find out what the, you know, the Christian churches are teaching out there, and that way we can know the truth. And yet the Bible says that even many religious leaders are walking in blindness. And again, you don't have to look very far to see evidences of that. Um, Satan is very, very content with people being religious as long as it doesn't expose them to the truth, as long as they don't walk in truth. And so if people you know, are happy going to church for an hour on Sunday morning and leaving it with a good conscience and then going about their business, doing whatever they want to do, living however they want to live, Satan's perfectly good with that. He's not going to stop them from that. And there are many churches that are willing to give, to soothe their conscience in that way. And yet those same churches, many, many, many in number, are teaching the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. And so although the second commandment forbids the making of statues and bowing down to them and, and doing obeisance and praying to them, yet there are churches that are full of statues today and people go into them and bow down to them and pray to them. There are many churches where hell is no longer believed, repentance is no longer preached, and even homosexual marriages are celebrated though God calls that an abomination. And those are all done in the name of God, in the name of Christ. And so we must be very careful, even in the religious realm, even in the Christian, in the area of Christianity, because it does matter what church not that you attend, but the people you're talking to. Just because somebody says to you at work, oh, I, I go to church every Sunday. Oh, good, well, you're good to go then. I don't have to worry about that person. They go to church every Sunday. It does matter what church you attend. Jesus said that if a man is not born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And yet, there are many churches that never preach the need to be born again. I grew up in one of those churches. Talking to a Lutheran woman not too long ago, and as I was quoting John chapter three, where Jesus says, "Unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom." As I was uh, quoting that verse from the Bible, she cut me off and she says, "No, no, I don't want to hear that. Our church referring to her Lutheran church, she said, Our church doesn't teach that. I was like, <laughs> Jesus. And so Satan has masterfully blinded even those who would consider themselves Christians and who attend churches. And finally, for those who do believe the gospel and are saved, Satan is doing his very best to render us ineffective in our Christian life and in our Christian witness. How does he do that? Well, he has a number of different strategies. One is just by using distractions. Simply by distracting us. Satan does not mind. He does not mind that we would be successful or that we would be in great health if our job or if our general busyness of our family life keeps us from spending time in the Word or keeps us from being faithful to church or keeps us from evangelizing the people around us. Satan's all about us being in good health and being prosperous. If that becomes a distraction... He also does his best to set up strongholds in our lives in order to weaken our walk with God. And so if he can get a Christian to harbor bitterness, to hold on to an unforgiving spirit, if he can get men to engage in pornography, or men or women to engage in gossip, or young people to engage in sexting, or uh, showing disrespect for their parents he's establishing a stronghold that he will then use to uh, weaken our walk with God and render our witness ineffective. Probably one of the best tools that he has in his toolkit is that of complacency among a lot of Christians. And I'd say, honestly, here in America, perhaps it's the most useful tool that he has. Complacency, which means having a feeling of self-satisfaction especially when coupled with an awareness I'm sorry when coupled with an unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies again it is so easy for us believers to fall into the rut of a minimal Christian life where we're content to simply put in you know a certain number of hours at church but without seeking to win souls for Christ without seeking to actively use our gifts to advance God's kingdom. And if that's the case, then we pose no real threat to Satan, and he's happy to leave us in our spiritual complacency. So you say, well, how do I know if I become complacent in my spiritual walk? How do I know? Well, probably the best way to know that is if you have, ask yourself what spiritual goals you have in your life. What are you striving to improve yourself or advance or progress in in your spiritual life? What spiritual goals? If you have no spiritual goals, as far as Bible reading or Bible memorization or witnessing or serving in church, if you have no spiritual goals, then in all likelihood, you'll become a complacent Christian. And so again, Satan is seeking to either devour as many as he can and he's incredibly effective at that. Or blind others, or still others who perhaps have come to know the truth, render them ineffective in their Christian walk. But as we said at the beginning, not only does the Bible tell us that we are in a war, and so thankfully we can, we can be glad for that, that we're not uh, unaware of what's going on. Um, God informs us the nature of this war, who our enemy is, how he operates. And so that's all very helpful information. But then God goes one step further and he provides the means to help us to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Let's go back to 1 Peter now and look at the means that God gives us. These are some of the means. There's there's other spiritual armor that's referred to elsewhere in the Bible. But let's look at the list that Peter lays out in front of us here, back in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice what he says, starting in verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And so we're going to notice there's five different means that God gives us here to be able to withstand the enemy's attacks. The first one is by a submissive attitude. And so he says to be, submit yourselves to the elder. Um, for those who aren't aware, this week I turned 60. I, n- I now qualify as an elder. So I'm expecting a little submission here from now on, okay? <clears throat> but the Bible teaches submission this, all through it. Nespa. Um, another French phrase. Um, <laughs> what's going on here? <clears throat> it's with 60, I guess, the mind starts to... <clears throat> um, But it teaches submission to government, it teaches submission to employers, it teaches submission to parents, and it even teaches submission to one another. In this text it says that. In Ephesians it says the same thing, that we're to learn to be submissive one to another. Everybody is concerned by this. And it's important because Satan's original fall was to not submit to God but at one point to actually lift himself up against God, to rebel against God's authority. And then since his fall, to you know, take with him as many as he can into that spirit of rebellion. And so whenever we, as child, children of God, whenever we are willful, whenever we're arrogant, whenever we are self-reliant, we are no longer submitting ourselves to God, And to the authorities he set up in our lives, we are instead falling right into one of Satan's snares. And so one way to resist the devil is to learn real submission. And notice that our text says very clearly, it says, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And so again, all of us are concerned by this. All of us need to learn to submit above all to God and to his word. And though it's contrary to our nature to submit, for the most part, right? We don't necessarily like the idea of submitting to somebody else. As we do that, as we learn submission, heart submission to the authorities God has set up in our lives and above all to the Lord himself, God grants us a victory over Satan and one of the means that he uses to try to to knock us down. All right, so that's the first means, the submissive attitude. The second, by genuine humility... Verse number 5 again, look at the second half of verse number 5. He says, And be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So again, the opposite of humility is pride. And so Satan will use our pride, however he can, to cause conflicts and to keep us from... Seeking forgiveness, uh, keep us from seeking to restore relationships. The Bible says in Proverbs 13.10, it says that contention comes only from pride. So contention, uh, arguments, conflicts, fighting. It says contention comes only from pride. Wow, think about that one yet how true it is. And that's why we're told in Ephesians that we shouldn't even go to bed angry, lest we give Satan a foothold in our lives. And so if you can imagine that, when we argue with our spouse or with our parents or with other believers, and we don't settle the matter before the end of the day, it's actually like we're opening the door of our house and saying to Satan, hey, come on in and do your worst. That's what the text in Ephesians says. It says we're giving access to the devil, giving him a wide open door to step in and create havoc. And he's awfully good at that. And so what's the best weapon to fight against that, fight against that pride? Peter says it right here, humility. He says we're to be clothed with Humility. So what does that mean? Well, there's a parallel text in James chapter 4, if you, if you want to compare the two. But in James chapter 4, we're not going to read it now, but in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of many similarities. It's a really a parallel development of this same idea. But in James, when he's talking about the same idea of humbling ourselves before God and so forth, he goes on to explain it. He says we need to be afflicted and mourn over whatever manifestations of pride there might be in our lives. We're to be afflicted about that and to mourn over it. We're actually grieve whenever there's any manifestation of of sinful pride in our lives. Uh, We should grieve over that. And the Bible says that as we humble ourselves, as we recognize that proud tendency, as we recognize that the, um, the fact that pride is keeping us from again, humbling ourselves, from asking forgiveness, um, from seeking to reconcile. When we recognize that and we grieve over it, we ask God's forgiveness on it. The Bible says that God will lift us up. And so he will accomplish a great work. He will make us victorious, again, over the attack that Satan's trying to use. He's trying to use that window that we've created through our pride. And and God comes along and says, I'm going to shut that window right down if you'll humble yourself, and I will lift you up. And so, as we seek the Lord's face, he'll enable us to respond kindly when we're being provoked. If we seek the Lord's face, he will give us the means to forgive those who have wronged us, who have hurt us. He will give us the grace to esteem others as better than ourselves. And so, by showing genuine humility... Not only are we resisting the devil and his attacks, we're of of course especially honoring God and the Bible says that the mighty hand of God will exalt us. So we will experience victory and blessing as we choose to act according to God's principles rather than allowing pride to direct our steps. Third uh, means that God puts at our disposal here, verse number seven, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I just kind of uh, summarized that thought with the phrase by relying on God's promises. Throughout the scriptures, of course, God makes numerous promises, and this is one of them, right? In fact, it has to be one of the most beautiful promises in the Bible, that God truly cares for us. And so much so that he he invites us to just cast our cares on him because we can know, we can be confident that he truly, deeply cares about every detail of our lives. And because he does care, we can trust him in every circumstance. No matter how fair a situation might seem, no matter how difficult or challenging a situation might seem, we can trust him perfectly. A man asked his friend how he was doing. The friend replied, I'm doing great. I just offered somebody $1,000 a day to handle all my problems. To which the man inquired, "But wait a minute, where are you going to come up with $1,000 a day to pay him? And the friend answered, well, that's his problem. But it's something like that. That's kind of what God's saying, right? God's saying, bring your cares on me. Cast them all upon me. I'm big enough to handle every single one above and beyond what you can even imagine. And so it becomes his problem. And that's what he wants. He wants us to make our problems his problem. And the Bible says that God's mercies never come to an end. Uh, in fact, he renews them each and every morning. Fourth means that he gives to us here in verse number eight, by an accrued vigilance. He says in verse number eight, be sober and be vigilant because of this adversary that we've already talked about. So Peter says, he puts his two words together, be sober, be vigilant. Now the word sober literally means to abstain from intoxicants. That's what the word means. And I know today the word abstinence isn't real popular, okay, Um, even among Christians, but uh, the Bible's really clear that a Christian should not be under the influence of anything, of alcohol, of any kind of a drug or anything else. Um, but the reason for that is because God is calling us to a life of vigilance. And so how can we be vigilant? How can we be watchful if we're, you know, if our minds clouded by whatever? And in fact, the word vigilant that Peter uses here is a military term, and so it kind of takes on a whole, even a little bit of a different shade of meaning because Peter, it's like he's reminding us that, hey, listen, we are at war here, guys. And so it's like saying, setting up a watchman, you know, to watch. Be vigilant. Be watchful as you would in a battle. We have a ruthless enemy who is delighted when a Christian lets down his guard and ceases to be vigilant and becomes distracted or becomes self-reliant. Or becomes complacent. And so, one of Satan's most effective weapons is to get Christians to believe that they are okay. As things are going, I'm okay. I don't need to spend time in the Bible every day. I don't need to prayerfully consider the daily choices that are being made. I'm doing okay just the way I am. And of course, the Bible provides a very stern warning to that type of thinking when it says that the one who thinks that he's standing, be careful that he does not fall. And so the believer should be ever watchful. And not only watching ourselves, watching over each other. You know, there's a text in Hebrews chapter 10 that says, Let us consider one another to good work. I'm sorry. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And it goes on and says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so the Bible says, not only should we be vigilant for ourselves and and watchful and careful for ourselves, but we're to watch out for one another and encourage one another and exhort one another. And so, you know, if there's a a Christian that comes to you and, and, and gently reminds you of, or encourages you in some way, uh, or says, hey, we've missed you at church. Don't take that wrong. Somebody's that's stepping out of their own comfort zone because they care about you and they just want to encourage you to, to make sure that you're staying close to the Lord and, and staying committed and so forth, but we should be thankful any time a Christian would would uh, seek to help you in that way. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to be doing. Be sober, be, be vigilant. And then the fifth means that the Lord makes clear in verse number 9, whom resists, so resisting the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So a steadfast faith. Now, notice here when he says to resist him with a steadfast faith, the word resist does not mean to attack. Okay, The word resist means to be unyielding in the face of an attacker, Okay, to remain steadfast. Um, and that's important because today there's a lot of different ideas floating around in Christian circles about what we're supposed to do with Satan. And so in some circles, they encourage um, the, what they call prayers of authority. You know, where you, you name the demons and you confront them and you bind them in Jesus' name and so forth. And, um, you know, I've often thought about that because if it were truly possible to bind Satan by such prayers, then who is it that keeps letting them loose? <sighs> But the Bible doesn't, you know, doesn't encourage us to do that um, because for the simple reason that Satan is more powerful than we are. Um, but because the, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, we are able to stand fast and resist whatever attacks that Satan would throw at us. And so it's important that uh, we stand fast in the faith. Now, the word faith, again, is based on the promises of God. The word faith simply means to take God at His word. That's what faith is. Faith isn't a nebulous, mystical thing. It means knowing what God has said, knowing the promises of God, and taking Him at His word, believing what He says, staking our lives upon it. And so, yes, we can stake our lives upon the promises of God no matter what attacks we are, are experiencing at the moment. Satan can do nothing to us unless we give him a foothold by the things we've talked about, not being willing to forgive, by staying angry, by refusing to submit, etc. But we are able to stand fast. I don't know about you, but I often think about the people, the Christians in the world who face incredible opposition. Just this week, our daughter, who is a missionary in Morocco with her family, they shared a prayer request for a young believer. He's just been saved a couple months, and, um, but he's been growing, growing, and, and sharing his faith well, his family got wind of it, and, and uh, his father called him back to, the, the, to their family house and, you know, chewed him up upside down one side the other and, and ejected him from the family and ejected him from the home and everything, ripped up his books, his, his uh, Christian booklets and so forth. And um, I just thought about this, you know, this young man, 19 years old, you know, facing that kind of opposition. That's a common thing in many countries of the world. And I often think, how do, they, how do those Christians stand fast? But just what he says here in verse number 9. These same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Well, they have the same tools, the same means available to them as we do to us. And so if they can stand fast in the face of real persecution, then certainly we should be able to as well. And in fact, they come back to what Paul says in Romans when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so we are able. There is, there is no excuse or there is no reason why a Christian should give in to any of the attacks of the enemy. God has given us the means to be able to withstand in the evil day, the Bible says. But the question now is, as we close, have we given some access to our enemy? Have we allowed him to, to establish some kind of a foothold in our lives? whether through complacency, whether through a, a sense of self-reliance, through allowing worry to dominate in our lives, to having an unforgiving spirit, whatever it might be, pride that has crept into our hearts. Are we willing to recognize whatever those, those footholds that Satan might have? Are we willing to recognize those and are we willing to humble ourselves before the Lord, even tonight, or if we feel like we're being assailed by all kinds of problems and, and difficult situations, are we willing to cast those cares upon the Lord tonight? Truly, just cast them upon Him and say, God, I, I need you to intervene here. I need you to take over. I cannot handle these things, but I'm, I'm going to trust you. I am tr- I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your promises as I cast these cares upon you. And so may this passage encourage each of our hearts tonight. We are in a war. But thank God we are on the winning side and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us as we take the means that God has given us and use them day by day.